Hello, this is Dara Whelan and I'm the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator. As part of our commemoration coverage, we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that's looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 objects. It's based on the book A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects by well-known historian John Gibney, who is the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor of Irish History at Trinity College Dublin, and has also written the biography of Sean Houston for the acclaimed 16 Live series. John, you're very welcome to the show. Morning, Dara. So, John, on today's podcast, we're discussing... Biscuits that were given to Kathleen Lynn whilst in prison during Easter week. Yeah, um, biscuits. And I suppose cream, not cream crackers. Biscuits. No, oh, definitely not cream crackers. Definitely not cream crackers. I know we're, I know that biscuits were uh, mentioned the other week in relation to the Jacob's factory. Um, but these weren't these weren't cream crackers. These weren't nice little dainties. They weren't fig rolls. They were, I suppose, the kind of things that the Jacob's family had got into business through making in Waterford in the nineteenth century. Apparently, they're ships biscuits. And you can see them in the uh, Proclaiming a Republic exhibition that's on in uh, Collins Barracks at the moment. And um, I suppose, before coming back to where, how the biscuits fit into the story, we should really mention the person who chose not to eat them, who was a fairly well-known individual in the stories of the Rising, Kathleen Lynn, who was the daughter of a Church of Ireland clergyman from Mayo, educated in Britain and Germany, and she became a doctor, uh, a fellow with the Royal College of Surgeons. And she had become politically active in campaigns for uh, suffrage and it helped organ, organise soup kitchens for the poor during the 1913 lockout. I suppose um, it's often remarked that many, many, you know, activists for female suffrage were coming from a kind of middle class background. And yeah, I suppose you could say that of Lynn, but that's, that's, not, to, I don't, that's not to be, she's not to be judged on, on her background, you know, necessarily. But she became involved in the Irish Citizen Army and she was amongst the, um, she was amongst the contingent of the Citizen Army who seized Dublin City Hall on the first day of the Rising. In fact, in the first hours of the Rising. Now, the fact that City Hall was seized at all is kind of linked to the fact that Dublin Castle wasn't seized. Uh, City Hall was kind of, and apparently the Citizen Army didn't have to break into the City Hall. They had the keys because they were led by a guy called Sean Connolly who uh, was actually a clerk in the motor tax office, killed the first uh, victim of the Rising. He was a police constable from Limerick, shot dead at the gate and later became the first rebel victim when he was shot on the roof of City Hall later on that day. And um, Lynn became, I suppose ultimately, apparently command of, of the small garrison ultimately devolved upon Kathleen Lynn. Now the thing is though, the garrison in the in City Hall didn't ha- they weren't in a position to hold there for very long because one of the first things the British did when the rising broke out was decide to reinforce Dublin Castle as the headquarters of the British regime in Ireland. Um, when they did that, that meant huge numbers of tro- or substantial numbers of troops ended up in and around the vicinity of, of Dublin Castle, having come through the entrance of Ship Street. Um, and that meant there were a lot of troops in the vicinity of City Hall. So it was fairly easy for them to overwhelm uh, the small garrison in there. They broke into the basement, came up through the building, scuffles ensued. And ultimately, um, you know, after uh, by Tuesday morning, City Hall had been recaptured and the surviving members of the garrison were detained. So that means that City Hall didn't just provide the first victims of the rise, and it also provided the first prisoners, you might say. And I suppose, to save hassle, like we think of um, Kilmainham Jail as the venue for prisoners. Well, it was eventually, but at the time, um, and you know, other Richmond Barracks was used for, for housing prisoners. Arbor Hill Prison was uh, used to house a lot of prisoners as well. But that came later as the rising was uh, grinding to a, to an end. If you're going to put yourself in in the shoes of the British for a moment, that all of a sudden you've captured, you've captured these people in City Hall, but the fight is still going on around the city. You're not going to line them up in a cordon and march them slowly through the city towards captivity. You're going to surely put them in the first place you can think of. And the first place you could think of, the most convenient place, is Ship Street Barracks mm. at the back of Dublin Castle. So Lynn and her colleagues are basically marched through the castle 
and uh, locked up in Ship Street, Ship Street Barracks until the rising was over. Now, the thing about capturing prisoners is that, um, what is he? The, the British didn't expect the East Rising to, to break out in the first place. They thought it had been, it had been, uh, it had fallen at the final hurdle. They didn't expect the Rising to break out, but they certainly didn't expect to have to detain large numbers of people for participating in a rebellion, and they were completely unprepared for this. Like they did not know. They, I mean, they they just couldn't handle it. You know, now the other things to do in the course of the rising, but all of a sudden you're being confronted with hundreds, thousands of men or women who had fought in this rebellion that come out of the blue. The fighting was over. What what were you going to do with them? You were going to put them wherever you could, but you couldn't just lock them up and throw away the key. Tempting though that may have been to the British, you had to feed them, you had to water them, you had to look after them, and that's where um, that's where these biscuits come into the, come into play. And I like the uh, the quote on it where she actually details the, uh, the the diet they had for the week. Yeah. Uh, she says the first day we had quite a good dinner. Yeah. Um, after that, the food got slacker and slacker until the end. We were getting ship's biscuits and water, which was our diet for several days. Um, the old military sergeant advised us that if we moistened the cloth with water and rolled the biscuits in it, it'd be easier to eat them. And we did that. He really was a kind old boy. And she goes on to say, when the military were able to go around a bit, some of them broke into one of the houses nearby and the sergeant came in one evening with his pockets full of oranges, which he gave to us. We thought we'd never tasted anything so delicious as these oranges. And uh, she, she claimed to have given some of our ration of biscuits to some of the younger women who had been detained. I mean, um, Lynn became somewhat malnourished in the early stages of her captivity. I mean, I suppose they're probably members of the... I mean, the citizen army was drawn from a poorer demographic necessarily, so, you know, some of them may well have been hungry anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cap the issue of captivity is a curious one because um, it does seem that the uh, you know a lot of the prisoners reported poor conditions, bad food, inadequate sanitary arrangements, and the treatment they got would have varied quite dramatically. I mean, there's one story of a woman who refused to go to the toilet for days and apparently caused herself permanent damage because of this. Because as women were being taken to the toilet, they were being abused by British soldiers. Mm. You know, they were being shouted at this kind of thing. Um, there's random acts of kindness that were reported you know one guy called uh, WJ Brennan Whitmore who fought around North Earl Street he reported um, getting into a conversation with an Australian soldier and you know the soldier nipped out came back with a cup of tea and you know a slice of cake you know Other, I mean you've a mixture of on the one hand like plenty of reports of abuse and ill treatment and humiliating treatment on the part of the British military cap- their military captors but many prisoners recorded them um, Quite a lot of acts of kindness, you know. I mean, and some actually said that the British Tommies, they were grand. But some of the real vindictive treatment came from the Irish troops. Units like the Royal Lupin Fusiliers, who seemed to take it a bit more personally. Mm. That, you know, maybe there's a touch of, you know, what they say about civil wars being a bit more bitter, you know. Mm. That the, the British soldiers, some at least, had a degree of detachment. Which is not to say that the British didn't um, didn't, abu- didn't abuse prisoners. They did, but... Mm. Plenty report acts of human kindness as well. Yeah, and it, and it's like kind of my thinking on it is as well. You know, you've just been arrested for rebellion. <laughs> you're going, you're not going to be treated with kid gloves. You can't be complaining about conditions or food. You know, you're not going to get the royal treatment. No, you're not. You know, now it depends on the would you get kind of a basic decent and humane treatment. And it seems that some some British officers and men stepped up to the mark. Some Irish ones did as well, mm. but others on both sides had no problem abusing their prisoners, attack you know attacking them, beating them, whatever. But, but yeah, like you said, like you know, there was so much confusion. People didn't know were the Germans was this a German invasion? You know, was this an extension of what was happening in Europe? People just didn't know what was going on. So you can un- imagine the tensions and the nerves and uh, and the heightened sense of uh, anxiety that was prevalent on both sides. And you, I could imagine that being a bit that being that being far more, I suppose, intense on the side of uh, soldiers from Dublin. 
This was their city. These were their uh, fellow Irish men and women. And they seem to have stabbed them in the back and perhaps even put their families in jeopardy. You know, so in a way, you can under, you can possibly understand those Irish troops taking taking a a more hostile line on it. You know, now um, with regard to to Lynn, I mean to maybe to complete her her individual story, uh, she was eventually moved to Richmond Barracks where about seventy seven of the women who fought in the rising were detained. Then then to Kilmaine and finally to Mountjoy, and as she said it herself. After a while, we were allowed visitors and parcels, and then we were inundated with all sorts of presents of luxuries. The only thing we longed for was clean bread and butter. We had all sorts of cakes and fruits, etc., but we wanted something plain. And even that tells you something. I mean, uh, the captivity of prisons became something of an issue for the British, because after the executions, when the British realised that, okay, they'd overstepped the mark, they began to claw, try to claw back you know, love bomb the Irish public, if you will, you know, and basically head off any suggestions. They basically wanted to make sure that the treatment of prisoners didn't generate sympathy for those prisoners. So uh, it, got to the, it got to the stage in uh, May 1916 where apparently Republican prisoners were receiving better food from the British authorities than the British soldiers who were guarding them, you know. They seemed to have gone an extra yard, at least for a while, in trying to suggest, no, we're treating these prisoners well, we're treating them decently and humanely, you know. They realised the mistake of the They realised the mistakes, and the treatment of prisoners was a, remained a live issue. And that continued on to, like, the treatment of prisoners in Frongock later in that year was uh, was highlighted by Home Rule MPs in the Irish House of Commons. One, in fairness to the Home Rule movement, you know, there was a long tradition of Home Rule MPs, including John Rebbin himself at one stage, who would argue the case of Thomas Clark. There was a long tradition of Home Rule MPs um, arguing for the rights of Republican prisoners, whom they may not have always agreed with necessarily, and who may have been far mil- more militant than they were. But it's like there was kind of, you know, whatever men, whatever men and women dying for Ireland, there's a certain uh, men and women in prison for Ireland. There was a certain potency mm-hmm. to that, a certain symbolic resonance that um, perhaps you know both the both British and Irish politicians became acutely aware of over time. Uh, Lynn herself would have been deported to England as many of these were but she remained active throughout the, year, throughout the years that uh, that followed and her main contribution to Irish life um, relates to the poor of Dublin by establishing St Dalton's Hospital for Infants which would have been up on Charlemagne Street which was uh, I suppose shaped by her own familiarity with the horrific living conditions that we found in Dublin slums you know and you could argue that was her l- more impactful lasting legacy maybe a far more meaningful legacy, I would think. You know, mm. the ship's biscuits are a, they're a small testament to one experience in her life, but there's other experiences that are far more positive than that. There's a whole other story there to tell as well. Absolutely. John, thanks a million for that. Uh, next week on our podcast, A History of the Easter Rising in Ten Objects, we'll be discussing, and it's our final uh, final tenth part of the, of the series, we'll be discussing a 1916 memorial card that was bought in Moore Street in 1917. John's A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects is published by Mercer Presses in all good bookshops. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud, read, watch, and listen to much, much more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916.